As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. For to this, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you tell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen. Thanks, Amy. So, good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. It's good to see you. I was uh, away this past week with my family. We go to North Carolina every fall uh, to kind of take, to actually experience fall. Uh, and I don't know if you know, but there's cooler weather coming this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow. So, I'm going to take credit for that, that we brought that back with us. However, that is not the best news that I have uh, for you this morning as we continue in a series uh, in this letter to the Romans that Paul wrote. Uh, and so we've been walking through this letter. We have this week and next week, and, uh, and then we're going to be done. We're going to say goodbye to Romans. And for some of you, that may be bitter. For some of you, it might be sweet. I don't know. Uh, but we've been doing this for a while. Now, I want to just give you a heads up. In the weeks that are coming after next week, uh, we're going to some pretty important stuff happening around here. So look around. We're a little light this morning. I'm sure that's because it's just... Such beautiful weather in every other part of the country except here. And so people are gone and away and doing things. But please uh, make a priority to be here in the month of uh, November and then in December as we um, launch into some things that we'll be talking about in the next couple of weeks. But for today, today we're in this passage here for the third week in a row in Romans 14 and 15. And you may say, why in the world are we taking so long here? And I really think it's because uh, this is such a needed discussion that Paul is introducing us to here. Uh, we, we really need it as a church in this moment in our life, and I think the church in America really really needs to ponder and reflect on this. And it's fascinating to me that after all Paul has had to say to us about the gospel, that these are the issues that he really brings out as implications for what he has said about what we are to believe. And so if I could just summarize this morning, I'm a little hesitant to say it this way because this could be really taken, um, taken in the wrong way and misunderstood. But I, for shock value's sake, I want to say it to you like this, that Christians... True Christians 
Like genuine people who've had a genuine encounter with, with the grace of God in Christ should be the least opinionated people in the world. Now, if you know anything, if you ask the culture, I don't think the culture would describe most people of faith that way. And yet, in some respect, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He lays down a command here in verse 1 of chapter 14 that we are not to be people who go about our life arguing over opinions. And that's, that's kind of the touch of grace. That's the mark of grace upon our lives. Now, let me be careful to say that Christianity is different from the culture which says there is no right and wrong. We believe that there are moral absolutes. Of course, we've been created by God. We were made to work in a certain way. God has revealed all of that to us in his word. So there is right and there is wrong. And to believe and to live differently is absolute foolishness. It's out of touch with the reality. However, Christianity, true Christianity, is different from moralism, which says moralism is prone to say there's only right and wrong. And so a moralist is a person who is constantly arguing and quarreling over opinions and just getting to picking fights everywhere they go. We, we, we don't believe like that that there is no gray. We don't believe that everything is black and white because that's foolishness too. It's just as out of touch with reality. Wisdom is knowing what is most helpful when there is no clear moral rule. That's what we've been talking about these weeks. And so real Christianity really is far less dogmatic or we should say dogmatic about only a few important things the things that God has clearly laid down. and everything else, there's freedom. And so we have to distinguish between revelation, God's word to us, and opinion, which Paul's talking about here. And with revelation, we have to be absolutely inflexible. But with opinion, and just a matter of personal conviction and conscience, we have to allow for differences between ourselves, and particularly between us and people who don't share our faith. And we need to appreciate and cheer for one another wherever we can. Now, in the Roman church, The people had begun to take some of these, look at verse 1, opinions, as Paul calls them. So these are things that are not a part of God's revelation. They're man-made rules and regulations, and they're raising them to the level of revelation, and then they're using them as a basis for measuring the sincerity of, of people's faith in the church. And his concern is that in doing this, they are not acting in keeping with the gospel, which he's laid down in these beginning chapters. Right here at the beginning of this whole section, 15 uh, verse, verse 3, he says, or 14.3, he says, stop despising and passing judgment on one another because God has welcomed you. Now, who is the you? All of you. God has accepted. He's welcomed all of you. He's embraced all of you. He's brought you into his family. That's what he's been writing about. Why? Why has God done this? Well, that's the whole first part of this letter in chapters 1 through 11. Not, it's not on the basis of what you do or don't do. And that's the whole problem. These different groups here in the church are judging others, you know, what they're doing. They're saying, oh, gosh, I can't believe, you know, he's doing that. Or, man, I can't believe she's not doing this the way she should be doing. And that's not the way of the gospel. Paul's gospel is that righteousness with God is a gift, not a wage. We are counted righteous, not on the merit of our performance, but on the merit of Jesus Christ God has welcomed us in all of our wrongness. And if that's the way that God has treated us in our sin, then surely it's the way we should treat one another where there is no wrongness to speak of, only difference in opinion. Now, one of the things we need to be aware of is that most, most disagreements, and don't be naive about this, friendships that end, churches that split, whatever the case might be, most of those disagreements are not over really important 
issues of the divinity of Christ or, uh, you, know, the, you know, whatever it might be. Really, most of them are just over differences of opinion. And what a conquest of hell. So this section of Romans begins in verse 1 of chapter 14, and it ends in verse 15, excuse me, verse 7 of chapter 15 with the same command, which anytime you see that, anytime there's a portion of Scripture that begins and ends kind of with the same command, we call that an inclusio, it means that the whole section is really being framed by what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 14 and again in verse 7 of chapter 15. He says, welcome one another. Welcome one another. Now we'll get to the details shortly. But the word means to make room for a relationship with someone. And the implication from the text is that we need to do this because we're very different. We're all, every one of us in the room is trying our best, but everybody's trying looks different. And those differences can create suspicion and competition and, and, um, and, and wanting our way to be declared right and everybody else to be declared wrong, and so the command to welcome is a call away from all of that to the warm acceptance and commitment to people who significantly disagree with you. And it is one of the defining characteristics of a person who's been touched by God's grace. And so we need to talk about it. And we wanna look at this text along these three headings. Why is it that Paul would be so concerned that we do this? Why does he have to tell us twice here that we should welcome one another. What does he mean by it, specifically in the, what we've already seen in these, these uh, categories of people, the strong and the weak that he describes here? And then thirdly, how is it that he tells us where does the power come from to be able to live this way towards one another and towards the world that he's called us to? So let's just walk through the text along those uh, three points. They're the three points in your outline, incidentally. So first, why? why? Why is this so needed? Why does Paul have to tell us here that we should welcome one another? And the answer is, back towards the beginning of chapter 14. So if you'd look there with me, it's why we went back and picked that up again. He says in verses 4 and then 7 and 8, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And so here the teaching is this, that if you're a Christian, you don't live unto yourself. That's the first thing. A Christian doesn't live to please himself. You don't do just what works for you. Look at verse um, 1 through 3 of chapter 15. It's the same theme picked up again by Paul. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please our neighbors for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. And so the way of Christ, we're told, is self-denial and love for God and others. And so a Christian doesn't say, you know, I can do whatever I want. That's not a Christian thing. A Christian person just doesn't go around saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm just my own God. You know, I'm going to do me. I mean, you do you is an echo of the lie of the serpent in the garden, right? To say you will be like God, which means you can, you can, do, you can be unto yourself. But that's not, that's not a Christian thing. Christian liberty doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want to do. It means you're free to do whatever you decide God wants you to do in the service of other people. And that's an important distinction. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you got to know that kind of the baseline of that is that you don't insist on your own way. It doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't do that. Love thinks about what other people need and then sacrifices to meet those needs. But if you're a Christian, you don't live unto yourself, but you also don't live unto others either. So we're not to please ourselves, but we aren't people pleasers either. 
And this is good news for me because this is me, okay? I'm not the first person. I'm the second person here. And, and the Scripture speaks pretty plainly and pretty clearly and pretty strongly about this, that the approval and the praise of others can't be the fuel of our lives. That's not love either. He says here, look there again in, in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 15. He says, we are to not please ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, but to please our neighbor for his good to build him up. So that doesn't mean that you're, you know, what Paul's saying here is we're just supposed to give in to every demand and expectation that other people might have on me. No, it means that I am called to lay aside my own agenda to do whatever is necessary to do good to them and make sure that they are being built up, that they are being strengthened in their relationship with God in Christ. Not held hostage, but I'm there to serve. So we are to welcome one another because we don't live unto ourselves and we don't live unto one another. But what the text says is that baseline of Christianity is that you live unto the Lord. All of life is lived unto the Lord. So you eat and drink unto God for God's glory. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Or you don't eat and drink, but you do it unto God. Either way, it's unto God. And that means because you've dealt with him over these matters. You've talked it out with him. You have some sense that there's, you know, of this unique way he's leading you and, you, and you're being obedient to his leading. And so, in all of those matters of indifference we've been talking about, you know, if if you have your kids in public school, do it unto the Lord. Do it as an act of obedience to him because he, it is what he has called you to. But allow the fact that he may call other people to other things. But if you, if you homeschool your kids, do it unto the Lord, not because you're afraid, not because you, you want to control the outcomes in your kids' lives. Those aren't the right reasons to do that. Make the distinction, right? Make the distinction. It's important. You can, you can eat and drink and plead to please yourself or, or to glorify God. You can not eat and drink to glorify God. You can homeschool to the glory of God. You can public school to the glory of God. You can private school to the glory of God. Whatever you're doing, though, do it unto the Lord. That's what he says. Think about your decisions. Do your decisions, do you make decisions, rather, simply because it's, it's what you want to do or because it's the path of least resistance or it's the least scary thing, or do you hear from God and obey? Another way to answer that question is if you look at verse 4, four of chapter 14, who's your master? Which master are you accountable to? Whose servant are you? Are you, are you your own appetites and desires the master of your life? Are the expectations of others and the demands they put on your life the master of your life? Or is God your master? Who are you taking your cues from? Now we're talking about the conscience here in many ways. And the goal of the Christian life is many places in the Bible, a good conscience or a clear conscience which means to be certain of our acceptance with God. Does anybody else struggle with that? Anybody else? Is that a fight for anybody besides me? Anybody else's heart condemn them? Anybody else ever wonder, God, does, what does God really think about me? I'm not sure, right? And so this is the fight. And it's especially in these gray areas that we've been talking about, right? Anybody else live there? You, you think, God hasn't really told me what I'm supposed to do here, so am I doing it right is he going to come and just, you know, is it the whack-a-mole? Is he going to come and just pop me over the head as soon as I step out of line and do something I shouldn't be doing? You know, and this is the fight of the Christian life. And so Paul is concerned about how we're stewarding one another's consciences here. So the teaching is this, that there is only one Lord of the conscience. That we do not give account of our lives to one another. 
We will give an account to God. You're not the Lord of my conscience. You with me? Do you believe that? I don't always believe that. Are you sure you believe that? I need you to believe that for me. Right? Because you're not the Lord of my conscience. I'm not the Lord of yours. You don't owe me an explanation for your life. I don't owe you an explanation for mine, but we will all one day stand before him. And he is the master. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know what I need in thinking about that? I need my friends to encourage me. I need my friends to acknowledge my weakness and cover it. I need them to ask hard questions, but gently. I don't need the laundry list of everything I'm doing wrong. I've got that already, okay? It's already in here. I need welcome. I need welcome. And I think you do too. The second, well, then what does it mean then to welcome one another the way that Paul's describing here? And the word means to bring somebody into your life. It means, it means to bring somebody into your home, to take them into your heart, to, to have a relationship with them, to make room for relationship with, with that person, particularly you know, in the ways that they're different than you are. They're walking a different path. Or they have different opinions. And as I've said, this section begins and ends with the same word here. So it's sandwiched between this Greek word proslambano, and it means to receive or to accept someone without trying to change them or teach them. It means to love them without demands, just the way they are, even if they're wrong or sinful, but especially where they're just different than you are. And so the passage divides all of us up, as Jonathan talked about last week, into two categories, the weak and the strong. And it would probably be good to review, and so let's do that for just a minute. The weak in faith, the weak, are the weak in faith, and they're the weak in faith because their conscience doesn't work the way it should. They have scruples about things they shouldn't. They feel guilty about stuff they shouldn't feel guilty about. God says, in other words, very clearly there's freedom here, but that makes them nervous, and so what they do is they start adding rules, not for themselves, not only for themselves, but then they, you know, for everybody else too, because they have, and what's, what's going on is there, there really is a weak grasp of salvation by grace. The strong are the strong in faith. They are the strong in faith because their conscience works the way it's supposed to. They know what's right and what's wrong and what's neither, and they have a strong grasp on salvation by grace. So what happens to a person who has a really strong, strong grasp on salvation by grace is, is the gray area of life just keeps expanding. There's less and less black and white and more and more gray. And in that gray, there's freedom. And they love and they celebrate that freedom for themselves and everybody else. And Paul's addressing each group, okay? And so one more week, let's just take them in turn, beginning with the strong, and just see what Paul has to say to us here. And the strong, we're told, chapter 15, verse 1, must bear with the failings of the weak and not please themselves. And that really is something. Look, look again at what that says. Because I looked in the Greek, and this is exactly what, this is a great translation, bear with the failings of the weak and not please themselves. Do you see the weak fail, it says. I mean, they fall into error. They're wrong. So there's some opinion, and they're wrong about the opinion. But notice Paul says, it doesn't say, you know, correct them. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. They're wrong. How do we usually address wrong? I got to fix it. I got to tell you how you're wrong. I got to make sure you know you're wrong. It's my job to fix your life and making sure you know how wrong you are. We become the wrong police. And Paul says, no, no, no. Bear with the failings of the weak and don't please yourself. They're wrong, but it doesn't say correct them. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It says they're wrong, but don't make sure they know they're wrong. Let them be wrong. It's okay. Bear with them. Be patient with them. 
Change change your life to make it easier for them. That's what it means to welcome them. Accept them and love them in their wrongness and, and, and give up some of your freedoms to accommodate them because we don't live to please ourselves but to please others for their good. Isn't that amazing? You should be like, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's amazing. I know there are only about 100 of you in the room, but that's, I need more from you when there are fewer of you in here. You with me? Okay, thank you. Like, instead, the temptation of the strong is to despise the weak. That's the word. And it comes up over and over again. Look at verse 3. Let not, of chapter 14, let not the one, oh, I don't think you have that, but it's there. If you have a Bible, you could see it. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And then verse 10 of chapter 14, why do you despise your brother? So the, the, uh, the particular temptation of the strong is to look at the weak person and to despise them. And Jonathan talked about this some. That word means to make little of or to be dismissive of. So here's the scenario. A person in your life has scruples about something and they think it's wrong to do X. You disagree, but instead of honoring their view and trying to accommodate them, you think, you know, that's just silly. They're dumb for believing that. And so you think it's your job to correct them and tell them that they're wrong for believing what they believe. And what Paul says is this is a form of judging. It's the strong standing over the weak, being superior, considering themselves superior to weak, to the weak, right? Saying, look at our freedom. We're better Christians than you are because we don't get knotted up by all of these trivial things. And Paul's saying, if there's someone in your life that has an issue with something, even if you don't, even if they're wrong. You should do everything you can to make the relationship easy for them because the relationship and not the issue between you is the big deal. I'll give you an example here. There's a divide. This is in my world, okay? This probably won't mean as much to you, but I'm telling you this is a big deal for me. So Uh, in my world, there's a divide among pastors. You'll be, I'm sure, shocked to hear uh, in our denomination about the kind of music and instrumentation and the style of worship, and we're still talking about these things 30 years later. You think we'd put these things to bed by now, but... So we, of course, have guitars and drums and, and sing hymns and also modern songs and so forth as a church. But it's such a big deal for one of the pastors in our, in our presbytery, which is in our, our geographical area, that, that when we have presbytery meetings, if the churches that are hosting those meetings have contemporary, what, what, what you might call contemporary music, music in their service, uh, he won't even participate in the meeting unless there's hymn, unless there's hymns in an organ. He'll go outside and walk around until the music's over and then and then come in because he has such deep convictions about these things. And so from time to time, uh, from time to time we host. And so if you can imagine how stressful that is, we have to put on the service, which means we decide what kind of music to do. And and of course, you know, knowing this about this brother, uh, what do you do? Now, I gotta be honest, I think he's wrong about this. I think I, you know, you know, I could say that's just dumb. That's being, that's being knotted up about things you shouldn't be knotted up about, right? We're just going to sing the songs we like to sing, and you're going to have to deal with it. But that's the despising that Paul's warning about here. So what does love look like? Well, in this instance, we change what we do. When we, have, when we host the presbytery, we just sing hymns from the piano to make it easier for him and those like him so that he could participate, because my brother being in the service is more important than me getting my way. You see what I'm saying? And that's the way the strong have to live towards the weak. Now, the weak also have a particular temptation. Their particular temptation, they're commanded to welcome the strong too. Uh, but their, their particular temptation is to pass judgment on the strong. And so they have to be careful not to impede on other people's freedom. 
You might have strong opinions about certain things that others don't. What do you do? You celebrate the difference. The temptation is to pass judgment. So again, I wish you had it printed. uh, Verse three of chapter 14, he says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. And again, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Verse 10 and 11, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So again, twice we see this temptation and here the word means to take the place of God in judging a person's rightness or wrongness. Thus the allusion to God's judgment seat. So in these indifferent matters where God has not given a rule, what happens is you can be the kind of person who creates a rule and then you go around making verdicts on others over whether or not they follow your rule. And always from a place of superiority. So you, you form opinions about other people based upon whether or not they conform to what you've decided is the thing that, that they should measure up to. And just like the strong, it's always from a place of, of superiority. So the weak say, we're better Christians because we do X and you don't. Or we're better Christians because we don't do X and you do. And it floods you with a sense of self-righteousness. Now, I'm more prone to the strong than to the weak, and so I don't have a great example here. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to notice in the way Paul starts to describe all these different groups in the church, notice the use of the word brother. I won't point it out to you. It's all over. It's all over the place in these chapters, chapters 14 and 15, to remind us of this one thing, that what Paul is getting at is that the relationship is more important than being right. In matters of indifference, remember, this is not revelation. I'm not arguing for truth, for love over truth. Don't, don't accuse me of being a liberal because I'm saying these things, okay? I believe in truth. I believe in moral absolutes. I believe there is right and wrong, but in these matters of indifference, the relationship is more important than being right. And the problem with just despising and judging is what it does to the family dynamic. It takes away the closeness and warmth that we're meant to experience with one another. Again, it's not about having opinions. It's okay to have opinions. The problem is if your opinions cause the relationships in your life to deteriorate. That's a problem. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, it's a terrible thing when a man who is right is right in such a wrong spirit that he does more harm than good by being right. That is happening everywhere in our culture. Should I say it again? He said it's a terrible thing when a man who's right is right in such a wrong spirit that he does more harm than good by being right. There's something more important than being right. That's what Paul's saying. Billy Graham said, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's my job to love. And I think that's right. We are to be welcoming, not despising, not passing judgment on one another and our differences, but how? Because, man, this is so hard. And so let me just finish really quickly uh, with pointing this out to us. The issue, of course, here is pride, that both the weak and the strong are proud, and, the, and that really is the problem. I mean, why are there sides anyway? This church is so quickly divided up into sides over particular issues. Why is partisanship so much a part of everything, and increasingly so? Is anybody else exhausted of that? And it's because there's latent moralism. There's latent moralism here in this church in the way that they're dividing up into, into parties. And it all goes back to the gospel. We are all looking for rightness, So the question becomes, where does your rightness come from? Does it come from being right? 
which of course means that you have to be committed to others being wrong? Does it come from being morally superior to other people? Is that what makes you feel right? If so, then being right will be the most important thing, and you'll be right in all the wrong ways. The text says, verse 7 of chapter 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In other words, what Paul says is the power to welcome and to not despise and to not judge is to know the way that you've been welcomed by God in Christ, not because you were right, but in all of your wrongness and mess. At the door of the kingdom of heaven is a welcome mat of grace. In other words, what gets you in the door is not being right, but whether you're rightly related to God in Jesus Christ or not. That's the issue. Now, let me be pointed here. I'm not usually like this. So bear with me. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling here, though, okay? That's what they used to say. I want to be pointed because Paul's pretty pointed in the text, and so I feel like I have the liberty to be pretty pointed. But here's what I want to say. When you find yourself either despising or judging someone else, you have a problem. And the problem is this. A, you're forgetting that God has already welcomed them in Jesus. And who are you to despise or condemn the one that God has welcomed? But the bigger problem is, is that if you find yourself either despising or judging someone else, you've forgotten that God has already welcomed you in Jesus. And who are you to despise and condemn others and wound them in conscience when you have been so embraced and lavished lavished with grace in all of your sin and wrongness and rebellion? Only the gospel, only the heart of God displayed in Jesus Christ can melt your heart and humble you out of your pride. Jesus did not live to please himself. It's the very essence of our gospel. He took no thought for himself. He made himself nothing. God, uh, he gave up his life in obedience to the Father, dying on the cross for our sins and being raised and now reigning in heaven. And he did all of this so that we might be welcomed into God's family. Isn't that great? He did all of it so that we might become welcoming. Now, don't miss the very last words of the passage. Verse 7, chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is about God, folks. God's glory is at stake here. We do all of this for him. You want to glorify God? The chief end of man is to do what? To glorify God. You want to glorify God? Here's what Paul says. If you want to be a person who goes around glorifying God, throw out a welcome mat of grace. Because the world, your heart and my heart, the world is starving for welcome. Let's pray, okay? Father, make us like this, we pray. Because we know how hard it is for us to overcome our pride and our self-righteousness and our, the insecurities that cause us to want to keep propping ourselves up as right and convincing ourselves of the way everyone else is wrong and the way uh, we allow that. How, oh, what, a, what a sad thing that we allow that to cause our relationships to deteriorate and fall apart, to where we don't feel the warmth and the support and the encouragement that we need from one another. Every single one of us is battling this huge battle of our hearts condemning us. And instead of providing the sense of encouragement and kindness that we should, this puts us at odds with one another. It divides us up along party lines and it force, causes us to, to look at the other as the other and not as a brother. And we do so much damage to one another. 
so much damage to the kingdom. We take away so much courage from one another. Forgive us for all of these things, but Jesus, thank you that where we have failed one another, where we fail to show kindness, you are the very kindness of God. Where we fail to take others into our heart, uh, Lord Jesus, you are, you are the, the heart of the Father for us. Not coming to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. What a great and glorious gospel we have. And so would you flood our hearts with the truth of the way that you've loved us, of the grace that is ours, and may it so soften us and so humble us that we become like this, like what Paul describes here, for the glory of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, God's arms are open to you. He says, come. The only fitness that he requires is our need of him. So if you need him, come. Uh, but if you, if you are in Christ, then I pray that, that you would go from this place this morning with, with that. I love just that phrase, his banner over me is love. His banner over me is love. His banner over me is love. Would you repeat it to yourself? Would you keep saying it to your heart until it softens your heart that you become uh, the very thing that you've experienced in him, that you would become a person welcoming of those not like you uh, for the glory of God. That's the work he calls us to do. So go and do that great work with these words of promise uh, on, uh, on your heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. <laughs>